Okay, so it is uh, 4 p.m. Uh, on my computer, and I think uh, we shall start uh, this uh, event today. Hello, everyone. Uh, good afternoon uh, from Singapore. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, my name is Aisha Al-Sarihi. Uh, I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Institute here at the National University of Singapore. And I'm very delighted to be uh, hosting today's uh, panel discussion. Uh, today, we will talk about hydrogen. As we know, uh, many countries around the world have turned to hydrogen for energy security, economic, uh, as well as environmental reasons. From environmental uh, perspective, uh, specifically, as the uh, global community to strive to, uh, you know, uh, to keep the 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming within uh, reach and achieve net zero emissions by 2050, clean hydrogen is viewed as a form of clean fuel that can decarbonize hard to abate sectors. These sectors that cannot be decarbonized by the available technology, such as the heavy transport, shipping, uh, aviation, and heavy industry uh, like the steel and chemical industry. And today we see uh, a growing enthusiasm towards hydrogen uh, development. Uh, as of today, there are more than 15 countries uh, globally that have announced national hydrogen strategies. These include countries from Southeast Asia, uh, specifically it is Singapore, who uh, uh, released its uh, national hydrogen strategy last year ahead of COP27. And from the Middle East, uh, the UAE, the host of COP28, uh, has actually a few weeks ago uh, also released its uh, national hydrogen uh, strategy. Other countries uh, are also embarking on hydrogen initiatives, setting targets, or signing memorandum of understanding to accelerate the hydrogen uh, production, use, and export. For example, Saudi Arabia have announced uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a big a green hydrogen uh, plant to be uh, developed in NEOM. And a few weeks uh, ago, uh, we heard that new NEOM Green Hydrogen Company completed the financial clause uh, for, for this project. Uh, also, uh, in April this year, Oman uh, awarded the first land blocks for six hydrogen uh, projects, and the International Energy uh, Agency has released uh, a report focusing on the hydrogen potential in Oman and uh, suggesting that Oman can be one of the biggest hydrogen exporters uh, by 2030. Uh, if we look at the Southeast uh, Asia, uh, almost all of the Southeast Asian nations are currently exploring the hydrogen uh, production, uh, use, and export. However, uh, the dilemma today, uh, there, if we look at the hydrogen production currently, it is uh, dominated by the uh, hydrogen production from hydrocarbon resources, from natural gas, from oil and coal. And the hydrogen that is coming from renewable energy, it's actually accounting for only 1% of total hydrogen output today. And 
this is uh, this is challenging because for the global community to reach net zero by 2050, uh, the according to the International Energy Net Zero Report, the clean hydrogen production needs to be increased from current level six times from its current levels uh, today. And if we look at the hydrogen market today, uh, we see that hydrogen production and utilization is already taking place in some uh, uh, countries. However, uh, in terms of the clean uh, uh, hydrogen is not a traded commodity today, apart from the demonstrative shifts that we have seen. So the gap between uh, where we are today and where we need to be in the future is still substantial. Therefore, uh, in this webinar, uh, we want to look very closely at this growing enthusiasm to uh, you know, develop the hydrogen. And we would like to uh, ask the question, is hydrogen more of a hype uh, than opportunity? And uh, in today's webinar, we will look closely at, this, at the hydrogen development in Southeast Asia, as well as the Middle East. So to uh, go through this webinar and to ask the, uh, you know, the question uh, of whether hydrogen is more of a hype than opportunity, I'm very delighted to be joined by distinguished speakers who have uh, expertise on hydrogen development in both uh, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined today from Singapore. We have Dr. David Broadstock, uh, who is an economist with around 15 uh, years of experience, most of which uh, is in Asia. Uh, David is a senior research fellow and a head of the Energy Economics uh, Division with the Energy Studies Institute here at the National University of Singapore. Uh, he's also a research affiliate with the Sustainable and Green Finance Institute at the university. Uh, from Jakarta, I'm joined by Mr. Mohamed Shadir, who is a senior officer at the Energy Modeling and Policy Planning Department uh, uh, in the ASEAN Center for Energy. He is currently uh, also involved in ASEAN Climate Change and Energy Project as a senior research analyst. And from Oman, uh, we have Dr. Uh, Abdullah Al-Abri, who is a consultant at the International energy agency focusing on sustainability technology uh, and investments. Before joining the uh, IEA, uh, Dr. Abdullah worked in the energy industry in the GCC and Australia, focusing on project development and corporate planning. Uh, before we uh, kick off the discussion today, uh, I would like to remind uh, the everyone who is joining us uh, that if you have any questions, please feel free to post them on the chat box for the MEI event or to me directly. And we will try to answer those questions in the Q&A session. With that, uh, I would like uh, to kick off uh, the webinar today with Dr. David. Uh, and I would like to uh, post the question uh, that we have in the title of, the, uh, of this webinar. Is hydrogen more hype than opportunity? I'll give the floor to you, uh, Dr. David. Uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be uh, a part of this panel. I, I'm sure it's going to be a very engaging discussion that we'll have between us. Um, 
can just share my slides with the audience. Okay, can I just confirm that you can see these okay? Yes, yes. Okay, excellent. So uh, thank you uh, for having me me join this. Uh, I'm just sitting uh, just around the corner from yourself, but, but not from the rest of the colleagues on the panel. So uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to an engaging discussion. And um, I decided, decided to target the question quite directly. Uh, and in 12 minutes or so, I'm, I'm just going to try and give you my quick take on the question about hydrogen. Is it more hype than opportunity? Um, it's already mentioned that my, my background is as an economist, and, and I'll talk around the slides, you'll, you'll find that there's more words than, than I'll run through, and I'll try to make a version of these slides available to you. Um, but, but the highlights, what, what does this mean if I'm an economist? Well, first of all, I, I believe that markets are usually a good way to coordinate economic activity, but, but I also appreciate that markets do not necessarily always work automatically. And, and the reason that they don't necessarily work automatically is because we have uncertainty and uncertainty persists in both supply and demand sides of the market. And uncertainty is very much an issue when it comes to hydrogen markets. And I'm, I'm going to play through just a few thoughts with you uh, as to what it is that I pay attention to when it comes to uh, hydrogen markets. But it all begins with a story of understanding as well where are we in relation to energy markets in their totality? And there's been a lot of change recently. So the first point I want to try to put across is that energy-related risk has structurally reconfigured. And I'll try to elaborate briefly on what I mean. So we've been presented within the past two to three years with a sequence of shocks. We had COVID, which disrupted energy markets. It, it created a calamity towards energy demand in, in terms of the significant contraction that we had to under, undergo. And, and supply chains shrunk accordingly over time as these demand shocks persisted. This created a consequence to price. And one thing we know for sure is that significant changes to price, they add definition to markets. And we can certainly see um, that, you know, what I'm going to argue is that we've seen such a significant shift in price uncertainty that markets have fundamentally redefined. Now, uh, maybe I'll skip through this slide in the, uh, the, the interest of time, but were I to try to say that I try to look to markets with a technical lens and observe the data and see whether or not there's changing consequences. The graph on the left and the very primitive interpretation on this tells me that the way in which the global economy was impacted by a shock in energy prices here, proxied by the Brent crude price, rose from uh, by an order of magnitude of about three to four times, uh, three to 400% growth in the scale of impact. Just take that as a, a kind of defensible conclusion. And the graph to the right, this is part of my, my own analysis, which actually tries to demonstrate that not only did we see a big change in the way that the markets operated, but that up until just two months ago, we don't see a clear reversal. Now, if you wish more interest on, uh, wish for more detail on these graphs, I'll, I'll happily unpack that in a different seminar. But, but my point is that I can clearly see that COVID restructured things and there's seemingly no way backwards from those impacts at the moment. Not, not, not to a state that 
that we can, we can think that we're back to pre-COVID market conditions. And I'll, I'll make that all make sense, why, why we care about that in just a minute. One thing we've also seen is that energy geopolitics has re-emerged with some vigor. In, in recent years, we've seen OPEC beginning to renew its status as a potential influencer of oil prices. And I, I know we're talking about hydrogen today, but hydrogen is increasingly important when we have high oil prices, high gas prices, high coal prices. It, it creates a different demand for these things. And so we're certainly seeing that OPEC is one side of the story where we're seeing uh, a renewed uh, attempt to influence um, uh, market prices through some kind of strategic sway. And then at the same time, I'm increasingly aware that countries like China are beginning to hold power over global markets. This particular graph, again, I'm sorry, it's a, a little bit technical, but there's a very fundamental story. If I'm to try to draw what I, I think to be a relatively clever picture of how the uncertainty within the markets has evolved in recent years, then what this graphic tells me is that from all the way back until 2010, up until just before COVID, 2019, 2020, there was one level of market uncertainty. Of course, in 2020, we expect that to spike and we see that in the data. But what's interesting is that the black line, you see that it does rise after 2020, and then it does not show signs of reversal, even up until today. So this for me is an important undertone that we have been facing a, a structure of risk within markets. And we certainly recognize that things changed due, due to the sequence of events that we had. The, the COVID conditions, the global energy crunch, which followed that, and then the interactions between Russia and Ukraine, which impacted global commodity markets in very powerful ways. Um, so, so we recognize this. There's a risk, a risk which we felt, and a risk which has changed and does not seem to be reversing. And then from Singapore's perspective, we suffer a similar problem with many other countries insofar as we, we have to import certain components of our fuel, our energy. And this creates important dependencies. And then from our particular perspective, we've seen that the risks which are presented to us as an energy importer have reconfigured structurally. They're not reversing. <clears throat> the second point I wish to make is that very clear, I think, for everybody in this audience, despite the risk situation, the scenario we're in, we, we do need to transition to a net zero emissions uh, power sector and economy. Pathways are required and we're taking efforts to advance this. In terms of where Singapore's discussion has been, and I'll concentrate a tiny bit on Singapore given my experience, we've quickly accelerated within five years from a discussion that was kind of in the not zero kind of consideration. We, we weren't committed to making net zero at a specific point in time just five years ago, but five years later, here we are, and net zero is something that we target by, uh, by the same um, timeframes as, as all of our peers, and we're doing the best that we can to accelerate this. And we're introducing a range of different mechanisms. That's the key point from this story, uh, that actually policy is evolving very rapidly. The complication with this is that we're not necessarily very clear on what the actual development pathways are. And scenarios have been considered by the market authorities. And, and we can see three particular 
courses of action which might make sense to pursue a clean energy based system which would have maybe a 30% share of hydrogen to pursue what we call a climate action block where the role of hydrogen is maybe 15% or so 10 to 15% or an emergent trailblazer an emergent technology trailblazer where the possible share of hydrogen exceeds 50%. Now there's two points to this. We don't know where the role of hydrogen truthfully sits within the future fuel mix of the economy, but one thing is clear, we're not conceiving a scenario where hydrogen is not a piece of the puzzle. So there is a lot of hype behind hydrogen. <clears throat> what can we state about the hype behind hydrogen? I like to think of it in a TRL5 perspective. TRL refers to the technological readiness level, and the graph on the right uh, indicates something about the technological readiness level scale. But in brief, we would expect a technology to be getting to the point of about TRL 7 to 9 to be where it is self-sustaining, commercially viable. Where we are today is that hydrogen is uh, a fuel which has some demonstrated cases that appear to support commercial viability, but not a marketplace for give, that gives everybody confidence that we're there. We're on the cusp of commercialization, but we're not quite there yet. If we turn towards market sentiment, what do we understand about where things have gone in the past two years? I, I think probably many of us recognize that we've been talking about hydrogen fuel for quite a period of time. What you see on the screen here is a graph which depicts uh, what's known as an exchange traded fund, a fund that is traded on the financial markets, which is intended to reflect the value of hydrogen as a commodity. Um, and, and so this graph illustrates that between 2021 up until just a, a few weeks ago, the value of the hydrogen commodity chain has maybe decreased by around 60%. Um, now, we should take those numbers with a high degree of caution. There's many caveats that we need to push behind this. But the core message is actually very clear. The market itself is of the view that the value proposition behind hydrogen as a commodity has been in decline in recent years. Yet we're still in a situation where, uh, because of fuel security, energy security, we're, we're pursuing hydrogen as an option. And this, um, this graph presents a similar finding. It says, well, let's look at the broader economic benefits that we might see within a hydrogen economy. But we, we see that expectations there have also mapped into a decline. So is it just hype? I mean, have we just had a lot of hype that has now been put to rest, that, that we've had a significant discussion around the importance of hydrogen, but truthfully speaking, it seems like the value proposition has been left behind. Uh, I, I tend to think not. I tend to hold on to this idea that we really are on a cusp and, and we're on a necessary cusp. Hydrogen within the Singapore context continues to be actively explored. And you know the details I'll, I'll leave you to follow up through afterwards. But we're in a situation where we're being forced to build out new gas-based power generation facilities because like many other economies, we're not in a position where we can scale up solar. We're not in a position where we can push many of the other alternative technologies that we might look towards. But hydrogen seems to be something that we can tap into because you can, in the short term, blend hydrogen together with natural gas 
and then in the long term, more easily retrofit some of those natural gas solutions. Now, to add a bit of additional context, what seems to be happening is that we are pursuing the idea that natural gas, uh, sorry, that hydrogen is a, an industry that is on the cusp of being commercially viable and carries strategic importance to us. And then we need to realize that it's not at all uncommon that we, uh, government planners, let's say, will nurture infant industries in order to facilitate the potential growth of those um, strategically important sectors. And I believe that's what we're seeing in the context of hydrogen within Singapore at the moment. And it's not an unreasonable objective. And if it works, it will provide also the advantage of uh, being a first mover into the hydrogen market and potentially acting in some ways as a, a hub within the region, uh, which is something to consider. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to just close up to remind ourselves on, on what at least I think are important messages to think about with hydrogen. Is hydrogen more hype than opportunity? Well, I think the following are minimally true, that there has been a risk that's evolved within energy markets as a whole, which causes us to need to pay attention to those on the cusp technologies. That we also need to identify on the cusp technologies that have the potential to achieve net zero pathways and the right versions of hydrogen will do that. There is a lot of hype between hydrogen, but this is not the same as a fad type of hype. This has some different foundations. It's a hype which is grounded in the reality that it may be a necessary pathway at least not to exclude and, and potentially commit to very seriously. And then preconditioning all of this because of point one, the structural reconfiguration and market risk, we must question whether holding out for a return to normal market conditions as we imagine they might, might occur may not actually happen. And we may need to force the hand of markets to help find new supply chains. So we cannot dismiss the hype in hydrogen. It's not fat type, it's something different. And whilst uh, some, of, some of the market participants are looking for opportunity, uh, others are turning towards hydrogen as a matter of necessity and strategic importance. In the spirit of trying my best to keep within time, I will close my opening remarks there. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much, David. And thanks for uh, sticking to the 12 minutes. Uh time as i suggested and uh thanks also to being right to the point on answering uh, my question uh as you said uh hydrogen at the moment is uh there's a lot of hype behind the hydrogen however uh because there are uh, structural risks in the market hydrogen and the energy transit uh, transition is a necessity uh with that i would like now to move uh, to uh mr muhammad uh, to give us an overview of the hydrogen development in Southeast Asia. And if you can speak about also what are the drivers behind hydrogen uptake in Southeast Asia. Um, Mohammed, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you, Aisha. Help me to this screen. Oh, you can see my share screen. 
Yeah, uh, good morning, uh, every uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for NUS and uh, organizers for inviting me on this uh, webinar on the, how uh, hype is hydrogen in Southeast Asia. So before answering uh, about this one, I would like to uh, present about our current uh, analysis on the hydrogen development in, in in the Southeast Asia itself, and particularly for the potential for hydrogen in, in ASEAN itself. Yeah, we are working in uh, in ASEAN Center for Energy is guided by our plan of action or called the APAI, ASEAN Plan of Action for Energy Corporations, in which uh, it is highlighting seven program areas, including uh, the renewable energies. And one of the activities that we are uh, looking or working on is also hydrogen as the promising technology or emerging technology that we consider in the near future. So uh, we also have the uh, an analysis about the, what will be the energy supply and demand in the future in ASEAN. And our recent publications on the ASEAN energy outlook named the seven ASEAN energy outlook, which is highlighted uh, what will be the energy supply and demand uh, for Southeast Asia from 2020 until 2050. And what you can see here that uh, on our analysis uh, by applying different scenarios, you can see here that by only applying the best uh, uh, scenario that the total final energy consumptions will be triple in 2050 compared to 2020. So uh, if we are doing nothing, it's, it's it seems that we need more genetic, a lot of uh, energy than, uh, than as expected. And, but if we also, if we are also applying another scenarios, but it seems also that the energy consumption is uh, increasing, but it is likely uh, increasing as much as we are doing nothing on the best uh, baseline uh, scenario. So how to how to handle this final energy consumption in the future, which is predicted to be triple in, in the 2050? And one of uh, our considerations is also about the emerging technologies such as the hydrogen and also another technologies such as CCS and also implementing renewable energy. And based on our another analysis that you can see here that the total power capacity in 2020 across the Southeast Asian nations is dominated by Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam in which uh, those three countries uh, accounted for around two-thirds uh, of the total uh, capacity. And if you can see here, the installed capacity of power, uh, installed power capacity in ASEAN by source in 2020, it is still generated mostly by fossil fuel. It is noted that the coal and gas and also hydropower contributed more than 80% of the installed power capacity. And on the, on the additional ASEAN instant power capacity in 2020, uh, if we compare to, to 2019 by source, it can be seen that the solar PV is the highest uh, additional instant power capacity in 2020, in which uh, it is uh, the first instant by the solar and then followed by hydropower. And uh, saying that background that the 
energy consumption is increasing year by year and also we are still dominated by the fossil fuel in majority by uh, by coal and oil so in ASEAN we are also thinking what other emerging technologies that we would like to develop further and one of them is the uh, hydrogen energy for Southeast Asia uh, because of that then one of our uh, recent publication is also analyzing on the hydrogen uh, potential in Southeast Asia and in uh, year 2022 we have launched the uh, hydrogen in ASEAN from economics prospect development and its applications then what uh, what we can see from the reports we started by uh, analyzing analyzing what why uh, ASEAN is the hydrogen itself as you might already know the hydrogen is a uh, the result based to develop indigenous hydrogen productions such as the green, uh, gray, blue engines, as also it is could be coupled with renewable energy uh, and as the future clean energy supply and energy storage. And it's also could it could be applicable not only for uh, industrial sector but also for creating sustainable road, uh, road transport. This is if we, uh, one of our finding that uh, this is only Singapore, which is, has uh, the national hydrogen strategy compared to, compared to another ASEAN member states. Uh, Singapore has the first country that have uh, highlighting what are the strategy to develop the national hydrogen strategies. From their analysis, you can see here, this is uh, the applications or, or, or uh, of the hydrogen that can be uh, applied in, in Southeast Asia, depending from the productions and then uh, uh, to the transportation and can be used in, in any activities, including power generations, uh, fuel for, uh, for, for fuel for cars or cell uh, vehicles, and also industrial feedstock and also maybe on the aviation side. And then what our finding based on our analysis, at least we analyzed uh, three findings. The first findings that we would like to uh, highlight it is on the hydrogen for power storage. If we can see here, this is the graph of the uh, LCOA of renewable energy storage comparison in ASEAN context. We try to analyze uh, or to compare different uh, technologies, including the uh, pump hydro, lithium battery and, and, and also hydrogen itself, which is uh, from hydrogen plus fuel cell and also hydrogen uh, plus with the gas turbine. If you can see here that the uh, blue bar here is the uh, hydrogen uh, with the fuel cells and then gray color, gray bar here is the centralized hydrogen plus gas turbines. And then for the uh, yellow bar is the lithium battery and the uh, light blue is the pump hydro. If you can see here in, in general that the cost of hydrogen for power storage is way higher compared to the battery and also pump hydro in all ASEAN member states. So uh, it can be said that the uh, cost of hydrogen for power storage is way, way higher compared to the other uh, technologies. And based on our analysis, it average that the cost for hydrogen plus fuel cell, the cost is around $1.47 uh, per kilowatts, 
and it is uh, followed by the hydrogen plus gas turbine, which is the cost is around a half dollar per kilowatt, but for the lithium battery and the pump hydro is much, much uh, lower than that. With the lithium battery, the, uh, the cost is only around 42 cents per kilowatt, and the pump hydro is only 32 cents per kilowatt hour. Next slide. Uh, the next one, what our findings on the hydrogen application for transportation uh, is that we, you can see here that we also do the analysis of how will be the total cost of ownership of uh, bus and trucks in, in ASEAN using the hydrogen itself. If you can see here, there are uh, two different uh, graphs. The first one is for bus and the other one is for trucks. And if you see here for, for bus itself, that uh, the gray bar is the, uh, the gray hydrogens, the blue bar is the blue hydrogens, uh, the green one is the green hydrogens, and then for the uh, for the yellow one is the battery electric vehicles, and for the orange one is the PHEV, uh, and the, uh, the black one is the ICF, ICF combustion engine vehicles. For bus, what we can see here that all of type of the hydrogens in the total cost of ownership of, of bus is much, much higher than any type of, uh, of another uh, vehicles. But for, for trucks, what we see here that the uh, battery electric vehicle for truck is much uh, or slightly higher than any type of the hydrogens. We see the, it is because the uh, Battery electric vehicle for truck is very, very heavy and uh, needs more insulation of EV in bus itself. So uh, it is expected that the uh, insulation, cost installation for battery to be installed in, in truck is much, much higher uh, than the bus one. So uh, what I can, what we can see here that hydrogen application for bus and truck is not economically attractive yet. It is around three times higher of the hydrogen vehicle price than the current diesel for, for bus and, and trunks. So that's why at that moment that the uh, hydrogen application for bus and truck is not uh, competitive yet compared to the uh, diesel bus and trunks. Uh, lastly, on our findings on the hydrogen for export market, here our analysis. Uh, if we take a look at the graph here in 2020, that the global uh, hydrogen cost is around uh, five US dollar per kilograms in, in the uh, red line here. And then what we can see here that in average that uh, any type of hydrogen training from the gray hydrogens, blue hydrogens, and and uh, green hydrogen in, ten, uh, in several ASEAN member states, in particular at member states, it's still exceeding the, the uh, global cost, but it is only with uh, Brunei and Indonesia on the uh, green hydrogens, it's slightly lower than, than, the, than the global cost uh, average. Brunei, uh, Brunei and Indonesia could produce the green hydrogen at uh, lowest uh, lowest cost around five uh, US dollar per kilogram among other member states because the two countries have abundant result of fossil fuel in particular for natural gas. So uh, this on this it is uh, seems that 
those two countries are able to implement the green hydrogen uh, as the early stage of the uh, hydrogen developments. And then uh, uh, saying that the cost that can uh, the, the cost of green hydrogen that can be uh, produced uh, either in Brunei and Indonesia, it seems could be considered quite attractive for Japan for Japan market because the gasoline price uh, per gallon in Japan is around six point two dollar, and and the diesel is around five dollar uh, after tax. So that's why uh, three hundred years uh, could be technology that can be uh, developed in either the Brunei Indonesia and can be transported to the Japan market where it is uh, can be competitive with the gasoline price in, in Japan markets. And then what we see in the future outlook of the hydrogens, uh, we are also doing uh, some calculations. If we consider if the cost of renewable electricity by 2030 is decreasing roughly by 70% with a capex of uh, 50%, that we see that the green hydrogen price could be reduced by 49% from average uh, 10 US dollar per kilogram to 5 US dollar per kilogram in as years. Just a reminder, Mohammed. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, if yeah. you can wrap up. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and this is what the current updates uh, that we are collected about the hydrogen. For for example, in Indonesia, uh, the Pertamina, the oil and gas that owning uh, oil and gas company, is considering to produce the hydrogens from the geothermal in Sumatra, and also uh, Brunei Darussalam has exported the first uh, uh, hydrogen to Japan in twenty twenty two, and then. What our uh, analysis uh, recommendation from our study? Uh, first, as the initial phase of the hydrogen developments that between 2021 and 2025, that the ASEAN could uh, uh, produce the gray hydrogens because the natural gas is, is abundant, in particular for Brunei and Indonesia. And therefore, the phase two, 2025 uh, to 2023, the blue hydrogen could be considered because currently there are some uh, research and uh, deployment of the CCS. Uh, and uh, for long term, 2030 onward, the first three, uh, which is the green hydrogen, could, uh, could be considered as a long term uh, strategy to be implemented in, in ASEAN regions. I think uh, that's uh, from my side. Well, thank you very much, Mohammed, and uh, thanks for highlighting that there is uh, indeed a growing uh, 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 ambitions for the hydrogen uh, production and use in Southeast Asia. Uh, but one thing that you highlighted on is that uh, because of the cost, uh, still the hydrogen is not commercially viable. And this is uh, goes back to the point highlighted by David uh, earlier. Now, I would like to uh, move the floor to Dr. Abdullah. And uh, I would like to ask you if you can give an overview of the hydrogen development in the Gulf. Uh, as we know, the Gulf Arab states, uh, uh, according to the statistics on the oil and gas reserves, uh, these countries are still will be able to access the oil and gas for the next, you know, like 20 or 80 years uh, ahead. However, uh, the Gulf countries have, you know, uh, joined the race uh, of the net zero 
five countries in the region have uh, committed to net zero emissions. And uh, we have seen there's a growing uh, uh, interest in developing the hydrogen. Uh, I will give the floor to you and I would like to hear more from you and uh, see if the hydrogen is more of a hype uh, than an opportunity in the Gulf. Thanks, Dr. Aisha, and thanks. <clears throat> and thanks to NUS for the invite. Uh, it's great to be here among the distinguished panelists uh, speaking about this interesting subject at this interesting time. So um, before I deep dive into the Gulf states and what the Gulf states are doing, uh, I just would like to remind all of us uh, on few key points that you know we all are sitting today on kind of an interesting dilemma of having an expectant for the energy uh, demand to be growing globally. So the energy demand will be growing uh, for greater energy access, industrialization, economic growth, and so on. So that will be growing. Uh, now we could argue on the mix, uh, but that's a different subject. Now, while that is growing, there's also a growing expectations that countries should be meeting their net zeros. Yes, so in many ways going, uh, going uh, clean. Now, a lot of reports are published and certainly from the International Energy Agency, uh, we continue to publish um, things on sectoral level, but also on uh, macroeconomic levels and policies. But if I can sum this up, I think the, that uh, global demand um, will be met in a decarbonized way uh, through two ways. So uh, electrons will pay roughly half of, or will roughly answer half of the equation. And the green or low emission molecules will answer the second half. So molecules will still be needed. And this is where the clean hydrogen will be playing a big part. Now, coming back to the Gulf, there is a broader context that the, you know, the Gulf states are so much centric around oil and gas. They've known this for eight, for decades. And the whole economy in many ways is built around energy. Um, so it's just a default option for them to continue to exploit uh, new vectors in the energy space. Now, if I could remind all of us, you know, what the Gulf states have done over the past decades in oil and gas, because this is so much, uh, I feel important, you know, for us to keep in mind, the Gulf states have started to exploit the conventional resources from oil and gas through the primary technologies. So, you know, putting holes in the ground and then a few pumps and then we get the oil from the ground. But then they moved slowly into the secondary technologies and then to the tertiary enhanced oil recovery technologies. So that's already in the blood and the DNA of the business here uh, in the Gulf states. At some point in time, and this is roughly about 25 years ago, the states have started to look into what could be the new vectors for oil and gas and could support the economic engines in the regions. And that's when they've started to look into the LNG. And they were some of the pioneering LNG facilities in the Gulf states um, uh, globally, although the business cases, if we all go back in time 25 years ago, uh, we would have seen a lot more uncertainties in the development of LNG then uh, and the LNG markets. And then obviously the economic condition, the Gulf states that the 
kind of to continue answering the question is how can we leverage more value out of this oil and gas? They've started to focus on the downstream. That's why we see a lot of, of downstream industries in the Gulf states. So there is a big supply from this part of the world, but also there is energy intensive industries that the Gulf states need to continue powering. Now, all of this is the oil and gas, and obviously extending the value of oil and gas to LNG and the downstream. But let's not also forget that the Gulf states are already producing sizable uh, quantities of gray hydrogen today. Now, Oman and Saudi particularly, they produce around 1 million tons of gray hydrogen um, annually. And this is by far uh, a very uh, sizable uh, production quantity. The whole EU, for example, produces 12 million tons uh, of, of, of hydrogen uh, today, roughly. So there is already hydrogen is not new to the region. And I, if I can latch on to this slide, the last time that was given by Dr. Mohammed, you know, having that gray hydrogen knowledge and expertise, it just allows and gives the Gulf states advantage, uh, put them into advantageous position to start leveraging and building on to the low emission hydrogen, whether it's blue or green. So that's one important point to keep in mind. There's also the industrial ports. Industrial ports plays a big part in the, in the, in the, in the kind of promotion and the exploitation of this uh, low emission hydrogen, because the ports are now, they're exporting ammonia, they're exporting methanol, they're exporting chemicals, wherein the, green, wherein the hydrogen is already a component in. Uh, so that infrastructure in the port is already there. And the global trading system. So the Gulf states have already, uh, they're already exporting. And from my expertise, they're already exporting to all the continents in the world. Uh, one important factor that stimulates the Gulf states to really also move into the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the low emission hydrogen is that there is various interlinkages with the legacy oil and gas. And here I can state a few of them. Uh, but the pipelines, I've talked about the storage facilities, I've talked about the, um, about the, uh, the, the oil reservoirs that they can be used uh, for CO2 storage. Uh, but also there is the produced water. The produced water that comes with oil and gas, that can be made for green hydrogen. Currently, companies, pay, they are paying millions of dollars to manage that produced water. And if that produced water, with the technology and solution integration opportunities, can be used as a feedstock for green hydrogen, it just makes the whole thing a lot easier and the whole thing a lot more economical viable, uh, economical, uh, economically making more sense. The last point why the Gulf states are also so excited to jump into the low emission hydrogen is the, um, is the competitive soft costs. You know, there is uh, the soft costs in the region sit around 20% of the overall costs of the projects. And soft costs are, uh, the non-technical costs, they're related to the permits, they're limited to the, uh, the, the, the site preparations and so on. So this is, they sit at around 20% of the overall cost of projects in some other parts of the world. And they are at the lowest side of the, lowest, uh, of the soft cost globally. Uh, some countries have soft costs, they're going all the way to 50% or 60% uh, of the overall cost of projects. So that's also put them advantages to really move into the low emission hydrogen. Now, given all of this spectrum and all of that mentality, where the Gulf states sit today, as I said in the beginning, they're already in the game. 
they're already producing gray hydrogen. So hydrogen is not new to the Gulf states, whether in the production side, but also in the downstream side. So converting the hydrogen into, into some products like ammonia and methanol and exporting them. Also using the gray hydrogen in the, in the, in the refineries uh, here in the, in the Gulf. So there is a lot of, a lot of uh, focus now to switch the current uh, gray hydrogen into low emission hydrogen. All right. Um, for the uh, sake of the time, uh, uh, I will uh, move to the, to the other speakers with the follow-up questions. Uh, I think what the, Dr. Abdullah was trying to highlight is that hydrogen production in the Gulf is not something new. Gray hydrogen has been already produced in the Gulf, and then there's the potential for uh, transferring the uh, existing expertise to something else, which is uh, the uh, production of the green and the blue uh, hydrogen uh, in the region. Um, I would like to follow up uh, with the questions uh, for, for you, Dr. David. Um, as we as we have seen that the uh, uh, you know uh, most of the hype today towards the hydrogen is focusing on the hydrogen production. However, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the uh, hydrogen is not a traded commodity, uh, not yet as of today. Uh, and so basically that means there's no demand for the clean hydrogen today. What are the challenges there? How we can increase uh, that demands and what are the measures that can be implemented to increase that demand? I, I, I shall maybe, before I begin, I noticed that Abdullah is back with us in the room. Do we want to just pass it back to Abdullah first? Okay. Uh, hello, Thanks, Dr. Sir. Abdullah. Is everything okay? Yeah, sorry, I was just uh, you know cut out by, uh, by the program for some reason. So uh, if you allow me, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll finish quick on, on the point that I was trying to make. Okay. So the, the, the target that the GCC states are now focusing on is to switch the current demand for gray hydrogen to uh, a low emission hydrogen, uh, and obviously exploit and explore opportunities for cross-border trade. Uh, and that continues to be the focus. Now they've set targets for that, and uh, we, we've seen some of the targets that were announced. Uh, they are consolidating the domestic demand, and one of them is switching, and obviously, the um, the hard to abate industries, and the third one is uh, building the alliances globally. So building the alliances for uh, you know accreditation, certification, plus plus also uh, investments and, and and markets. One interesting aspect that uh, I personally um, I'm personally excited about and have been so much involved in is evaluating the uh, repurposability of some of the skills and supply chains from oil and gas to the, uh, to the energy transition, and obviously the uh, low emission hydrogen. And we've done a lot of evaluation, and we see a good um, prospect uh, for repurposing some of those capabilities, including, as I said in the beginning, some of the pipelines, storage facilities, uh, some of the skills um, uh, that can be uh, repurposed uh, to really serve the low emission hydrogen. That will allow the low emission hydrogen to develop in a more competitive way uh, and, and in a, uh, an expedited way. The third one, the third point that I wanted to make is that the Gulf states are also moving to create sustainability centers. Uh, sustainability centers wherein the low emission hydrogen uh, should be playing a key role. 
uh, in uh, moving uh, those Gulf states to a net zero by 2050 or 2060 um, uh, because of the setup and the economic structure of the Gulf states, you know, hydrogen needs to be in the game. Uh, as I said, you know, they're, they're already producing the gray hydrogen. So I, you know, it's, it's a difficult question whether we call it a hype uh, or a hope uh, or a reality, uh, but I think it's part of the uh, uh, business development curve. Uh, uh, and that's why I mentioned, for example, the LNG that was developed 25 years ago, and I've seen myself the business cases that were made and the uncertainties that were attached to it. And I was a project manager uh, in the oil and gas company. So I've seen the economics for the EOR and some of the really expensive EOR projects, but they are reality now. So I think it's, 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 it's a necessary hype in a way, uh, but also moving into um, a reality uh, in the coming few years. And I close with that. Thank you. Well, well thank you very much, Abdullah. As you highlighted, there is a, a lot of uh, uh, potential advantages for the Gulf countries, despite the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, high uh, oil and gas reserves uh, uh, and wealth. Uh, the expertise is there. It can be transferable to, you know, the new sector, the hydrogen production, uh, because uh, gray hydrogen has been already uh, produced uh, in the region. Um, and actually, throughout my reading, uh, we we learned that uh, for Neom, uh, uh, which has uh, the financial close a few weeks ago, uh, it suggests that the project will be start operating in 2026. And Oman also announced, like for the first hydrogen, uh, the production will start in 2028, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. Um, this is a short period of time. It is like in, within the next three or you know uh, six years. Uh, if you can please, um, you know, because of your expertise in the region and you are pretty much closely working with the stakeholders there can you please uh highlight on the key challenges that uh you know face the hydrogen uh production and the export in the region uh, to put it in a simple words how we can translate those ambitions into uh, a reality uh, thanks uh Aisha. the challenges are uh, first one is the the uh, a, a unified global definition uh, of uh, low emission hydrogen, whether it's blue or green, and the certification schemes that go goes along with it. Um, you know, we've been, and I personally was so much involved in some of the discussions, in uh, you know, um, engaging with international stakeholders on, you know, how do we define blue? If we capture the CO2 and put it into the uh, into the underground for EOR, can that be defined as blue hydrogen? Some of the some of the countries are saying no. We might not consider that as blue. It, it should be kept uh, for storage. So, so that the, the, uh, the, the definitions are yet, you know, are, are one of the um, uh, focus areas that needs to be developed to kickstart this um, uh, international uh, cross-border trade. Uh, and I think that's taking shape. Uh, that's taken really uh, good shape. The second challenge is the cost of production. And I think it was highlighted. Uh, cost of production is still high or higher uh, for the uh, for the for the blue and green hydrogen for the definitions of the technology, yeah. So because the blue requires the same setup plus extra equipment, so that's 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 cost. So the higher cost of techno of technology, but then given the announcements, 
And given the time frame, uh, 2027, 2028, or 2029, uh, the technology should be in the, you know, the, the projects should be in the money. The projects should be resonating and making uh, economic sense. And when we speak about uh, 2028 or so, uh, they are just in the, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, tomorrow, as we call it. Uh, a usual oil and gas project takes around seven to eight years to develop. Um, so this is pretty much standard. You know, if projects are sanctioned today uh, and uh, reaching the financial closure today, you know, they're expected to uh, come on stream by 2027 or 2028. So I think the growth is there. Uh, so that's the second challenge is the technology reduction. I think it's in line now with the technology maturation. Uh, the third one is setting the, the right policies uh, for some uh, of the sectors or some of the countries in the GCC. So setting the right uh, investor-oriented policies um, uh, that stimulate uh, this uh, growth for low emission hydrogen, whether for the domestic product, uh, domestic utilization or for the export. So, you know, the challenges to me are three. One related to the international trade with its certification and unified definition. The second is on the technology, and the third one is on the domestic side, so setting the regulations and the and the legal frameworks. Yeah, but but given the the, the announced targets, Oman has announced a target of four million tons of green hydrogen by 2030. The announced projects will already produce 1.8. So even if one of the projects slip down or slip out, you know, still the target will be achieved. And uh, so that's that's the kind of the level of confidence that we're talking about. Uh, on the green and low emission hydrogen. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Abdullah. Uh, also for the sake of comparison, uh, I wanna go back to you, Mohammed. Uh, you mentioned uh, the cost uh, very clearly as uh, one of the obstacles for the hydrogen, uh, you know, uh, scale up in Southeast Asia. Uh, have you also, given that you are involved with the uh, ASEAN Center for Energy, uh, are there uh, also other key challenges that will uh, stand in the face of the hydrogen uh, production and use in Southeast Asia? Yeah, uh, what we see here in, in, in Southeast Asia and other challenges uh, besides the, uh, uh, the cost of hydrogen itself, what we see here, the lack of uh, hydrogen infrastructure in, in Southeast Asia, such as the uh, pipeline or liquefaction plants and, and others. So uh, once the technology is there, maybe the, uh, uh, we know how to produce the gray hydrogen, but then uh, after infrastructure is, is, is ready uh, enough in, in Southeast Asia. And then uh, another, another challenge is that we also see here that uh, lack of market uh, due to high, uh, still the high price of the hydrogens. The current market that we see is only for uh, for for example is Japan and South Korea because they are uh, closely uh, close with with Southeast Asia, but also we need to also pick out what are the bigger market other than that to unlock the potential of the hydrogen market itself, and then the other challenges that we also uh, in discussion with several experts is on the safety uh, safety of the hydrogen itself. Uh, a safety concern is one of the uh, uh, finding that we found in particularly uh, for the public itself. Uh, 
so such as the gas explosions or the gas leakage. Uh, so that's why uh, this is like the uh, uh, another challenge that uh, that uh, that we see in Southeast Asia. Okay, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Muhammad. Uh, David, if I can come back to you again. Um, yeah, I asked earlier, uh, you know, uh, there is no demand for the clean hydrogen at the moment, despite this uh, growing enthusiasm towards the hydrogen. Um, uh, Abdullah and Muhammad uh, highlighted clearly because uh, for some, uh, there are also, there are, there are issues with the definition of the hydrogen, the certification schemes, uh, do you also uh, think that there are other enablers that can, you know, enhance uh, the hydrogen demand uh, globally? Yeah, that, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think we're all singing the same song, and, and, and probably you're going to hear a lot of this. Um, I'm not so sure that we can really qualify this as a market with no demand. I, I think we can certainly qualify this as a market with unrealized demand and questions around whether or not that demand could or should be realized. And, and I, I think it's useful potentially to think of things in that context because you know, I, I think there's so much momentum and discussion that it's obviously a technology which is being given a great deal of seriousness, not just within this region, but globally. There's, there's a lot of work being done in Japan, Australia, America, and other places to, to facilitate the expansion of these markets. And, and the key point here is that it's not a market for hydrogen that's absent. There's a market for hydrogen today already. And that market is for hydrogen as a commodity in and of itself. But what we're talking about is the market for hydrogen as a source of fuel. And, you know, I think Abdullah made this point very eloquently that actually as of today, there's not necessarily a rich enough environment, a rich enough environment in terms of the regulations and standards to permit that use for hydrogen as a fuel to give those market participants confidence that they're ready to proceed to the next level of investment with the technologies. Uh, and then on top of this, you've got the price uncertainty. And the price uncertainty is a combination of both supply and demand factors. But you know, I think there's an interesting question, which I, I think you were leaning towards a bit earlier, which is, well, is there maybe another layer of consideration which needs to be moved forward, which is regarding the commoditization of hydrogen with a view to it being a fuel? And, and this, I, th I think, is actually another question which I'm not going to attempt to answer, but I, I believe it is a very important question. Because if we're to make that transition, then we probably also need to realize that traditional fuel sources, we, we I think, quite naturally fall into a way of thinking that hydrogen is just an extension of natural gas. Now, I, I know the chemists and engineers in the room will tell me that I'm making a very brave assumption there, but, but in, in many ways, you know, we can see that connection because in the very first instance, you're just using it to complement the natural gas supply chain. You're just injecting, you're, you're blending. And, and so there are connections between these markets, parallels which are important. And then what we know about things like natural gas and oil, is that commercialization or commoditization has coupled with the creation of futures markets in addition to spots markets and trustworthy mechanisms to allow everybody purchasing along the supply chain and everybody supplying along the supply chain to 
be confident about the flows of money that are moving forward years in advance so that the whole market can stabilize and calibrate. Now, I'm not sure there's yet enough of a discussion around what happens to the commercialization of hydrogen with respect to it being a market that is no longer just for the commodity, but also for the, the role it plays within the fuel. And again, I caution my wording there with, we already trade hydrogen as a physical commodity. We use it in various different ways. And so there's something different which needs to emerge in order for it to be working as a fuel. And so, you know, I, I, like I say, I, I think really I'm singing the same song as, as those messages pre presented by Mohammed and, and Abdullah, but we, we need to see a couple of things move together. But, but I think we are, and I'll, I'll maybe offer my sort of closing position. I, I, I think we are in a marketplace where there's an effort to realize the value proposition, that there's opportunity which we know is potentially there. And that opportunity places more importance over discussions at the moment than the hype which has now been and gone. The hype is in some ways receded and there's a realization that we're in a marketplace that is on a cusp. And there's a very important signal presented by more than one economy that there will be efforts to create a physical marketplace, an actual production of energy from hydrogen-based sources as clean and green as possible, uh, preferably green all the way. Um, and then, we'll maybe worry about the other marketization components later because particularly at this point in time, energy security places such a high value upon all of our considerations that we just haven't been presented with in recent years. Uh, so that's there's, there's my thoughts. Well, thank you very much, uh, David. Um, so I don't wanna like uh, monopolize the discussion. So I wanna open the floor uh, for the questions. So please, uh, anyone, if you have a question, please feel free to uh, write it directly to the chat box to MEI event or to myself. Uh, at the moment, I have one question from uh, Gorg Bustin, who is a, a visiting fellow at the Middle East Institute. And uh, I believe this question is uh, to Dr. Abdullah. Uh, he's saying based on their advanced start uh, position, will the Gulf states preserve their advantage as key energy suppliers in the hydrogen as well, being a global bump? Um, thank you for the question. I think it's a, it's a big one. Um, uh, I, would, I would be inclined to say that the Gulf states would love to uh, be part of that uh, um, low emissions, in a, low emission uh, energy production and trading. Uh, some of the countries are trying to be pioneers, um, so ahead of the curve uh, in terms of supply. Um, but I think it's still too early to say whether they can be pioneers, because uh, you know, renewables, they are available everywhere. Uh, and the policymakers are really uh, aware of this. So uh, renewables of some sort, whether it's uh, the hydro or the thermal or um, the, the biomass, um, so the renewables are not only limited to the GCC. The GCC, I think, is blessed so much with the renewables, uh, with solar and wind, and the integration of those. Uh, maybe they can exploit the uh, the thermal and the sea. So, uh, would they want to dominate? I think it's uh, still too early to um, to answer the question, but certainly they want to be part of that game. 
uh, not for any uh, reason, but there is a natural uh, fit with the economic structure that's already taking place in the country and in the in the region. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Abdullah. I have a technical question, and I believe this is to Mohammed. Uh, the question is, uh, what is the duration of storage or the renewable energy storage compared to the hydrogen with the battery? Is it 30 days or? Uh, yeah, based on our analysis, it's around, uh, 30, around 30 days, but uh, we don't uh, do any uh, in-depth analysis on how much it is exactly, but it is around uh, 30, uh, 30 days. All right, uh, so I'm still waiting for questions. Uh, anyone, please feel free to post your questions. Uh, and while we are waiting for that, I do have uh, a question myself. Uh, now we see that uh, hydrogen is an opportunity for almost uh, any country to take a role in uh, you know, producing the hydrogen because almost every country has uh, one source of another of uh, renewable energy. So my question is, um, are we going to see more of a cooperation? Uh, or competition between countries when it comes to the hydrogen? And will the hydrogen alter the geopolitical energy map that we see today, or is it gonna perpetuate the current geopolitical, uh, geopolitical energy map? It is for um, the three speakers. Please feel free to jump in. Well, maybe I'll I'll go first if I may. I, I, I actually meant to to comment on this uh, a moment ago because actually one other thing to think about when we consider the the creation of the markets or the stabilization of the markets maturity is probably the best word. When we think about other energies like or fuels like oil and natural gas, there's a, a, a geographic concentration which resides behind these, and and that creates a certain kind of anchoring that becomes almost natural for the markets in, in terms of where the, the organization occurs, the hubs. And, and this may be very different when it comes to hydrogen, but, but actually if we extend that, I mean, that, that by itself presents an interesting dilemma because you, you bump into the question of, well, well where would the hubs emerge? Uh, and if everywhere can potentially be a mini hub, then, then which one makes more sense than the others? How do you put this market together? Are we talking about like a European gas network type problem? Or are we talking about something else? But um, I, I think also there's the added dimension, which is that, well, we realize that many countries have the potential to produce a, a certain amount of hydrogen within their own borders. And then the question becomes, well, how much and why do you need to trade? And, and you know, could there be a self-sufficiency question, which begins to play an important role? And, and again, in the complexity of the energy markets today, with all of the energy security concerns, which have been heightened in the past couple of years, that that, that question is surely on some people's minds. Um, one thing that the analog which plays through in my mind right now is that, well, when we had shale gas emerge as a potential source of energy, uh, we, we had an awful lot of optimism towards, you know, self-generated uh, sources of fuel. And that energy was met with unexpected uh, problems. You know, we had the ground conditions which created uh, potential ground movements and all sorts of problems that resulted in regulations that prohibited 
the the production of of energy from uh, extraction of shale gas in, in certain countries and this goes back again to Mohammed's question around also the safety considerations which exist in relation to hydrogen which, which are there people are already raising these considerations so no, I, I think there's a lot to consider when it comes to that question of the, the geographic dispersion, but then on top of that, what it could create in terms of a different landscape for the import requirements of different countries. Thank you very much, David. If anyone wants uh, to you know, comment on the question, please feel free. Um, otherwise, I can see uh, questions are coming in the chat. Uh, one question is, can LNG serve as a model for hydrogen markets, or might this just be a flawed idea? Uh, if, I, if I take that, I think LNG would be a really good reference uh, for, uh, uh, for hydrogen markets uh, for many reasons. But for one is that it started on mid to long-term contracts, and I think this is much needed now for the hydrogen because no one will be investing on a very short offtake. Uh, so that's one. And two, you know, upon the maturity of the technology and the markets then becomes on a uh, spot market. So, so on, in terms of market design, I think it's, uh, it's, it will more or less uh, follow the same, uh, the same growth. Uh, and secondly, it's so much uh, close in terms of um, properties and export uh, mechanisms to LNG, uh, more so than oil. So I think, yes, it's, it'll be uh, one of the very good references to benchmark um, and, and, and learn from LNG. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah. Uh, another question from John Sok from uh, Energy Studies Institute. He's asking, uh, which of the hard to decarbonize sectors do you think hydrogen can be the best alternative? In the cases that we've seen here uh, in Oman and the GCC, we see the steel is certainly one of the uh, very hard to appear sectors that hydrogen is, 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 a, is a very good uh, uh, fit. And that's why, for example, some of the big companies here in Oman, Jindal Shadid, is now moving into that. Um, uh, the second one is um, obviously the, the, um, the ammonia loops, loops that are produced that are taking so much energy to produce the ammonia uh, so that those ammonia loops uh, operate in high very high temperatures so uh, they can be powered by green hydrogen um, and few other industries like the aluminum and the glass uh, they're also um, uh, they could also uh, be relying on hydrogen so that's what we're considering in oman and certainly have been you know engaged engaging with some of the stakeholders in the region and that's the mentality that's what i can say Thank you very much. Um, a question for David, and this one is from Asif Shuja, who is a, a fellow at the Middle East Institute. He's asking, why are the big oil companies lobbying for hydrogen fuel production? Are there any push from them to promote more of blue hydrogen than green hydrogen? Maybe the question is, is this valid or... Um, I mean, this is a complicated question. One, one could take many positions on this, but um, uh, I mean, let, let, let's go with a simple rational conclusion uh, that, that may or may not hold, but is, is certainly worth remembering. So, so one intermediate solution is actually, you know, 
if we take Singapore as the context, and, and my context has been fairly narrow-minded, but the context here is that we have an existing supply chain, a fuel mix, which requires um, the use of natural gas. And in the very, very, very near term, we can take hydrogen and we can blend it into the fuel mix and we can slightly decarbonize our power generation. Now, it won't be a total decarbonization by doing that, assuming it's all green hydrogen, by the way. It won't be a total decarbonization by doing that, but it's a fairly quick win. And, and this is you know, one place where there are natural synergies between the emerging hydrogen uh, supply chain and the existing hydrocarbons. Uh, use of fuels to, to generate power for the economy. And then if we go to the question of would an oil company or a company that produces natural gas see wisdom in trying to help facilitate that market process, which will extend the potential lifetime of what will become stranded assets if they don't use the, the oil and gas, uh, then, then one can very obviously land on a conclusion that well, they, they wouldn't be against it for sure. Uh, now, questions of lobbying, I'll, I'll steer clear of. I, I, I don't know that I, I know enough or want to know enough about precisely how the markets are being lobbied. This is a, a very different type of question. But, but what I would say is this, that, that certainly big oil companies, as we might choose to refer to them, that they have a complicated situation that they need to work through. Now, one thing which is ultimately true, unambiguously true, is that none of these companies wish to end. They, they don't wish to come to a cessation in their operations. In the very long run, they have every aspiration to be in existence. And, and to achieve that will not be a 100-year business model built on oil and gas. It has to be something different. So, so really, it's a question of what is the roles that these companies can play to appease their stakeholders in terms of sustaining the potential value of the assets which they currently retain versus making the transition to the alternative in a way which is pleasing to as many parties as possible. And, and there's obviously going to be many conflicts in that process. Um, so I'm kind of navigating around the question by trying to not place a view on, on the lobbying side of things, but, but there's natural market dynamics which are quite important and, and it's important to step back and, and truly appreciate the, the powerful forces which exist behind those and the long run outcomes, which these companies themselves will be very much aware of in making their strategic decisions around how to operate today. Thank you very much, David. And uh, I do agree with that. Uh, uh, company cannot be uh, not making a profit uh, overnight. Uh, they should navigate through the process of the energy transition. Uh, I have another question from Clemens, who is also a fellow uh, in the Middle East Institute. Uh, so Clemens uh, says that Saudi Arabia uh, has, through the recent visits by the Crown Prince to Asia, namely to Thailand, South Korea, uh, and currently uh, to Japan, secured investment deals on boosting the uh, hydrogen economy. What is exactly there for Asian parties? What is the value in these agreements? Is it uh, more uh, of a technology, know-how, storage hubs, or uh, is there anything else? Uh, I think this question can go to uh, Abdullah or Mohammed. Maybe Mohammed, do you want to go first? Uh, you might go first, I think, yeah. Yeah, so 
you know, uh, from from the perspective of the GCC countries, um, you know, having that partnership and collaboration, I think it's it's uh, it's part of uh, of developing uh, new growths. Uh, so all countries are looking for uh, uh, new partners, new investments. Um, that partnership uh, will take up many forms. Uh, for one is investment, technology, supply chains, uh, expertise sharing, uh, but also extend all the way to the offtake. So that's from a uh, from a GCC perspective. Now, what's uh, in it for the other uh, Asian countries? I think it's uh, uh, it's 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 that energy security that Dr. David was referring to. I think it's it's really important to keep all the engines and all the economy running uh, smoothly. So securing uh, various types of energy, uh, whether it's the conventional oil and gas uh, or the decarbonized oil and gas or the new energies like hydrogen, is so important to the importing nations. Uh, so that's one advantage. The secondly is uh, keeping a foot in the production of technologies and supply chains. Similar to the historical trend uh, in the oil and gas, you know, uh, a lot of those nations are industrial by definition, uh, so they want to really transition as 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 quickly as possible, so they can have that leading edge uh, in in exporting and manufacturing. Uh, and thirdly, I think it's the joint investment. In investment, they have a lot of value uh, for both the importing and exporting nations, and uh, um, uh, and 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 collectively, the three reasons I think it it reinforces some of the discussion that I was referring to your previous question on the um, reorientation of the global uh, geoeconomics, uh, and I think that's true to to some ways. I think the global geoeconomics uh, is so much is much beyond energy, uh, if you ask me. But it so much rests on a fully functioning energy partnership. Uh, so that geopolitics, I think, is reshaping. Uh, and that serves uh, the this macroeconomic objective. Yeah, uh, for, uh, from uh, from from center Southeast Asia, then we see that the hydrojets uh, with the growth country is not to become the competitor or challenges, but in in contrast, it will be uh, an opportunity to building the operations. As mentioned, uh, I agree that uh, it will be maybe like the similar case of oil and gas. Initially, that a lot of uh, oil and gas cooperation between like uh, Southeast Asia in particular for Indonesia and India, Malaysia, which are the higher producer of oil and gas. And we are also learning and being collaboration with the uh, uh, Gulf countries. This also will be the similar case for, for Southeast Asia. Like I mentioned uh, before that uh, we are still a lot of challenges in the um, in the hydrogen productions, uh, such as in the gray hydrogen production for, for, uh, from uh, natural gas. And also there the issue on the uh, safety, then uh, where we see that uh, these challenges could be solved by uh, learning from another experience, particularly from the Gulf, uh, Gulf countries. For example, uh, since the uh, uh, application of gray hydrogen is still in early developments, uh, in particular in Indonesia. So that's why a lot of uh, experts should be developed, a lot, a lot of uh, technicians should be developed. So maybe one of uh, uh, strategies to improve the capacity or the uh, knowledge of the expert in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia countries to learn uh, uh, from the Gulf uh, countries on how they are working on the green hydrogen from, from natural gas. So uh, this is what we see as uh, the potential collaborations. Uh, so that's why we see that it is more on the opportunity rather than the challenge of the competitions. 
Great, thank you, Mohammed. Um, uh, there are still uh, more questions in the chat uh, box, uh, but I also want to. Uh, one aspect that we didn't talk about is the uh, finance of the hydrogen uh, uh, projects. Uh, is it really a, uh, of a challenge to uh, uh, allocate the finance for the hydrogen projects? from uh, the Southeast Asia perspective and from the Gulf perspective. If I, if I uh, give my take on this, I think the financing uh, and investments, the world is not short of money. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of money floating. The challenge is on the uh, market structure. And if I could simplify this, is that the producers, uh, like the Gulf states, um, they are inclined to make it on more on an off-taker pay model, whereby the off-taker takes a bigger share of the risk, uh, whereby uh, some of the markets are trying to use the gas station model, whereby you produce uh, the low-emission hydrogen, get it to my door, and then if I want, I'll buy. If not, then uh, and, you know this is my demand. So it's 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 still the, the the market dynamics are still shaping up, and this is I would say very natural. Uh, once I think the agreement is there uh, on which model the world is going through, and uh, I think this should be, you know, with the current signings and the and the movement and and the and the focus on the low emissions, I think that will be um, uh, kind of addressed in the next few months or so. Uh, once that market model and business model is agreed upon, I think the, the, flow, the, the flow of the money uh, should have no problem. I think the, there's huge money waiting for, uh, uh, for technologies and markets to develop. Yeah, and Oman maybe can, uh, and Saudi Arabia as well, can give an example for that uh, uh, in terms of like uh, uh, joint ventures and also uh, the partnership with the other countries to develop the hydrogen. Indeed, so so some of the strategies that uh, some of the GCC countries are doing, and, and, and I'm speaking of awareness from Oman, uh, for example, is to start producing uh, uh, products uh, for a start, because products have less uncertainties. I'm saying here, for example, green steer, less uncertainties than fuels uh, for export. So, you know, let's wait for the global definitions to be developed, but the definitions for green steel, I think they're, they're already there. So that's one strategy that uh, that uh, that Oman has taken. The second one is trying to consolidate the demand in the local in the domestic markets, because that will uh, allow the supply chains, the orientation of the markets domestically to shape up, uh, reduce the soft costs that I was talking about uh, to a really competitive way, leverage upon the current infrastructure, and when the uh, you know the the royal coaster for the uh, cross border trade comes in, then the whole thing is set up. So those are some of the tactics that uh, uh, that the governments over here are trying to do. Plus, of course, establishing the frameworks and the policies and the and the legalities that will assure the investors uh, on the markets. Okay, great. So we are three minutes uh, to closing this uh, session today. Uh, I want to conclude with one question for the three of you: uh, Are you optimistic uh, in seeing uh, the hydrogen? production and export uh, becoming a reality in the near future. Uh, 
Uh, I can maybe go first. Uh, so, so I think I've already expressed a, a cautious optimism. I, I, I think there's a, a pragmatic question around what are the other alternatives, which at the moment mean that we will continue to see additional momentum, additional investment. I, I'm cautious in that I think markets need testing before we make the firm commitment. But it seems like we're willing to be doing those tests and not just hypothetically, but governments are making, making the commitment to actually properly test bed. And, and um, absent of another alternative emerging within the near term, I, I think in 20 years from now, we'll be looking at a market which has a sizable proportion of hydrogen and material, let's say a material market scale, but um, I may be wrong. Thank you, David. Mohammed. Yeah, from our uh, perspective, it is uh, very, very positive because it's, it is like the new technology coming in. Like, for example, like when we first introduced like the solar PV, we determined that the cost is very, very high. But then since uh, the market is there and then we need to move to the energy or carbon. So that's why uh, we think that we are pessimists that in the future that hydrogen will be considered as the, as the, uh, the new technology that will help uh, the countries to achieve with the energy or I think you know hydrogen uh, has made false startups in the past few decades so it was trying to you know come in the game and then disappear for some for one reason or another um, but what I say what I can say is that this is very natural in any technology uh, we've seen it in the PV cells uh, we've seen it in the um, uh, combustion engines to produce power uh, we've seen it in some of the ER technologies um, yes I agree with the speakers, Dr. David and Mohammed, that the market dynamics are, you know, still require some maturation. Um, but I'm, I'm very optimistic that the hydrogen will pick up. So with that, uh, it is 530 uh, my time and uh, we, we are coming to the end uh, of this session. Thank you very much for the three speakers for a productive uh, uh, and fruitful discussion. I, I indeed learned a lot uh, today. And thanks to everyone who is joining us in, in this uh, webinar. Uh, and with that, uh, I wish you all a happy uh, afternoon or evening. And thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Thanks you. Thanks to the speakers. Thank you.